Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 64th episode, we have artist Nathan Meltzon to discuss his animations, his collages, his videos. And again, they have a nice wide range, but a lot of it explores uh, the sci-fi genre. Maybe you think of THX 1138 or Brave New World, but they deal with politics and life and draw from personal experience as well and comics and all sorts of things. So please stay tuned for that. And of course, you want to check out NathanMeltz.com, become familiar with the work, look at the videos, and see what we're talking about beforehand. Again, NathanMeltz.com. If you've never heard of Studio Break, we are a podcast and blog site. We have a variety of different artists come on each week, and I discuss their work and talk about it, all the developments along the way, and you can check out all the interviews on StudioBreak.com. Again, each of those posts have images of all the artists' work, links to their websites and galleries, and you can listen to it right there with the default player. Again, you can go through the archive feature on the left sidebar, check out all the episodes that you've missed. We've had over 80-some, so there's plenty there to check out. A lot of great stuff. You can also go to the iTunes store and subscribe to the podcast if you just want to get it updated that way. And, of course, we hope that you check out our Facebook page and, of course, like it and also follow us on Twitter at Studio Break. And you can follow me at David Linaway. All right. That's enough of my little introduction here. Let's welcome Nathan Meltz, and please stay tuned. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you on Studio Break this morning. How are you doing, Nathan? I'm doing great, David, and I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, um, you know, as we were just saying, you know, I, I, it's always great when I meet new people for this podcast, and um, you know, I just saw your work and was really excited about it. But um, you know, I'd especially like to start off with a little bit of a background, just so that our, our listeners can kind of get an idea of uh, who you are. So, uh, could you tell us a bit about yourself, where you're currently at, and um, you know, maybe where you grew up and some of those experiences? I guess we'll get into more specifically, but. Sure, sure. I'm currently based in Troy, New York, where I have a studio practice, and I also teach at the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, uh, which is like the oldest engineering school in the country, which brings uh, about kind of an interesting art climate. Uh, but I actually grew up in a rural, well, not rural, but a small port town in the northern part of Wisconsin, pretty much, uh, if you imagine Lake Superior being a little shark, I am kind of grew up on the nose of the shark. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a, a working class port town without much, uh, without m- much chance to see a lot of art uh, until I discovered the local public library and uh, discovered my love of Jack Kirby comic books from old classic Marvel 1960s comic books uh, and kind of used that as my portal into visual visual adventures, science fiction, um, and kind of laid the foundation for a lot of art things that I'm still very much influenced by. Um, Then uh, moved on to the University of Wisconsin to uh, where I pursued my undergraduate degree uh, in art education. And as soon as I got that degree, um, and and as an undergrad, I uh, very much focused on screen printing, uh, graphics, but kind of all things 2D, um, but got this degree in art education as soon as I had that degree, I pretty much immediately uh, stopped thinking about teaching for a while and basically traveled the country in a band for about a year or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, got a record label, um, uh, subsidiary, subsidiary of uh, 
uh, Parasol Records put out a record this band with this band that I was in. Um, but eventually, a, a second record never really came about, and I settled into teaching elementary school art at Madison, Wisconsin for uh, about six years. Met my wife uh, at a party at a co-op, um, and with her being in grad school, it kind of gave me the idea to start a graduate program. Um, and luckily, since I was interested in printmaking and I was at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, there was already a great printmaking program. So I spent two years at the uh, University of Wisconsin and uh, pursuing uh, in their MFA program and pursuing printmaking. But left after two years, but completed my MA, but not my MFA, um, my, as my wife got a tenure-track job at uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy. So we made the move to Troy, where I taught another year of elementary school art, and then completed my MFA at the State University of New York at Albany. Nice, nice. Well, and it's interesting to listen to you talk about you know comics early on, because certainly you know when one looks over the animations... Um, you know, you can't help but kind of think about some of those things, you know, science fiction and comic books and, and some of those things that you kind of maybe bring with you into into your work. And it's always interesting to see, you know, the way that those things might ping pong into, you know, what you're doing now, which is, you know, awesome. Did you do a lot of drawings that were like that when you were younger or was it just um, something that you're interested in? Oh, I think I spent my entire youth trying to replicate various superhero comics and doing really second and third rate versions of uh, all my favorite characters. And, you know, I'd eventually there was a point, I think, in my early 20s when I really discovered that sort of 90s indie comic movement of Dan Klaus and Chris Ware that I very much tried my hand at comics. And uh, at the time, I didn't have the patience for it. I'm kind of considering now trying it again. Um, so she, I'm inspired by Ticha comic, uh, of course it's a lot of comic books at Rensselaer, uh, Polytechnic Institute, which I'm going to start referring to as RPI, um, where I teach a course that's mostly comics, but with some storyboarding and animatics. And it's got me really interested in comics again. Um, and I might take a stab at it sometime again. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, the, the way you think about, um, even that kind of accessing of, uh, you know, stories and information and, and graphics, you know, something that's actually printed because that's something that's, uh, frankly, disappearing a little bit at this point. Yeah, no, I have a lot of students when, you know, and I, I talk to them about current trends in comics and they're, they're reading them all on their iPad or different e-readers, um, which, you know, I'm, I don't want to not embrace technology, but there's something really nice about the printed image, uh, the printed object as, you know, and its relationship to book arts, you know, Chris Ware put out his building stories, you know, it's a big box of stuff. It's basically a giant artist book collection that's been, you know, it's all offset litho and, you know, it's, it's pretty with, and there might be a little screen print with it. Um, it's all pretty mass produced, but it's still, you know, very much uh, an experience you couldn't get through an iPad. Were those experiences the, the kind of ones that brought you into thinking or at least looking or pursuing, uh, you know, printmaking and, and education then? Or was that something that, uh, like all, all the time for artists kind of develops as you kind of go along in terms of what you wanted to do for a living? You know, the uh, the printmaking started off as a necessity. I was Ever since I was 19, I was playing in bands. Some of them were regional and some of them toured nationally. And you needed somebody who to make the merch. Right. So there always had to be somebody who could screen print shirts. 
uh, in posters. So I, and I was like the one who was in art school. So I focused, uh, on doing that. And then that just eventually evolved through many different iterations to the point where I was making just like ridiculously elaborate rock posters and then eventually moving on to just prints that were not, you know, were just self-sustaining, were just art prints. Um, and then the education was just an experience uh, from when I was an undergrad teaching art to kids in the Catskills in the summers. There's these all, you know, a bunch of camps in the Catskills for, you know, mostly kids from the city and, they, you know, they have theater camps and art camps. And I happened to go to one of these camps and worked in their art department and found that teaching was something that I was competent at and i enjoyed so that kind of kept going and kept me going in the teaching direction as well sure sure and, and what kind of content were you interested in at the time i mean it's it's also really interesting to know that you're kind of you know you've got all these different facets in terms of you know your creative energies you know in terms of making music in terms of you know art and um you know interest in teaching but what what subjects were you interested in at the time were they they similar or different or you know, definitely in my 20s, I was less interested in what was going on in the fine art world and more interested in visual culture, uh, d- delving more into film history, experimental film, uh, poster art, graphic design, industrial design. I was definitely uh, just more focused towards the visual, and it wasn't until I got kind of maybe my later 20s and I realized that that wasn't quite keeping me interested as much as I wanted to. Well, so you, you kind of, you know, talked about, you know, being in, in bands, making all these rock posters and, and kind of pursuing your, your degree in education. Um, was, how did that art experience move on from there? You know, what, what led you back into wanting to, you know, explore a, a, a fine art degree? You know, I started, it, no, it, I, a lot of it did start by looking at people who are making rock posters who, were kind of sneaking into the art world and people that were just getting away with doing things that were ridiculously unlike a rock poster, but kind of passing themselves as off as a rock poster. For instance, uh, people like Jay Ryan, who are just making art prints, uh, but they're for bands. Um, and great people like Little Friends of Printmaking, who are doing crazy, elaborate, self-referential design and print work for bands. Uh, artists like Sari Pop, from uh, Montreal, who started doing these very hard-to-read um, abstract rock posters, but then started doing installation work uh, and just doing gallery work. So people started creeping from the poster world just into many other sorts of worlds, and I realized like that was something I wanted to do, too. I wanted to branch out. Um, and I at, at, at the time, um, before I had enter the uh, SUNY Albany MFA program, I didn't quite know how to make that bridge very well. I was dabbling in doing posters and prints and a little bit of site-specific work, but I wasn't quite fo- I wasn't quite sure of the language I wanted to use visually, and I kind of just felt like I wasn't expressing what I wanted to do. Um, it's kind of funny that we're, you know, we're on this podcast, and I remember listening to something that Ira Glass once talked about on one of his live performances of how when you're in your 20s, you maybe know something good when you see it. And, mm-hmm. you, and you, you've worked really hard, um, but you keep kind of failing. You don't quite do the thing that you know is good. But you, you kind of know some of the qualities of what makes for good art or culture. But you can't quite do it. And then at a certain point, you're able to start do it 
without failing so much. And I, I kind of at the point before I did the MFA program at SUNY Albany, I knew good thing, good work when I saw it and I could kind of luck into it once in a while, but I couldn't do it consistently. Um, and that's why I knew I needed to go to grad school and really focus on looking at broadening my view of art, looking at more things, uh, broadening my um, kind of studio practice as well as the art that I was being exposed to. I had like a big chunk of time working, teaching, making posters, being in bands and all that during, during that kind of gap in there. What was it like to be able to go back into that environment? Yeah, I think it's a lot easier when, you're, when you've had some other experiences. And I'd say like uh, I, I may not – I'm not going to say I'm a, a great artist or the perfect teacher. But I was a pretty darn good grad student because I was so totally open-minded. I had done a studio practice – that I knew was only partially successful. And in order to make it more successful, I just, you know, when my instructors suggested things, I just tried it. I took, I was taking risks constantly, which is that thing you see younger grad students who maybe they've come straight from undergrad. They're just holding on really tight to what they were doing before. And a lot of people undergrad, enter grad school and they're not willing to give up anything to try something new. And I was the exact opposite. I had I was in no way married to my prior studio practice and I was totally willing to try new things. And at some point I did this sort of sequential screen print, like these screen print collages that were in a sequential order, kind of like a storyboard or a comic. I was thinking like a comic and I had some instructors say, well, why don't you animate this? And because, because it looked like a storyboard and I thought, well, what the heck? Mm -hmm. Um, and because, and it was very important that I was living while I was going to school in Albany. I was living across the river in Troy, New York, which is a big kind of a tech center. And is you know, I had all these friends that were grad students at RPI, which is you know, of course, big technological based grad department. Um, and every every you know, every kid in this town is a video editor. And can do like, you know, video production. And so I could just ask a friend, like, how do I animate this? And I had friends that taught me, you know, how to more define my sound engineering skills. Some of that I had quite a bit from being in bands, but people who could teach me animation, help me, you know, learn advanced Photoshop skills and learn all the tech. So within a few months, I was up and running and doing basic animations. And after some time doing that, I could do, you know, slightly more sophisticated work. Well, and what was the, the subject matter, you know, that you were kind of emerging? You talked about, you know, being in a place where you could be, you know, really open to pursue, you know, anything. You weren't tied down to anything. Sure. So what, what were your interests in terms of exploring? You know, it's funny. So my visual language is all about these machines, mm-hmm. machines that are metaphors for technology and how technology affects everything. So the first one was... Uh, was the subject matter of what was really affecting me at the time, which is I just had a baby. And mm-hmm. so I thought in this technological world where I have these little robots that are stand-ins for people, um, how would these robots reproduce? And so I told this little 90-second story of reproduction um, that, of course, goes haywire. And, you know, it's really kind of like blocky. It's pretty, you know, it's not, it's, it's, quite static for an animation. It's a very, it very much reads as a first animation, um, but that was a story I chose to, ta- to tell. And then actually, as I went in grad school, I actually told a longer, more sophisticated animation that's about uh, 10 minutes long mm-hmm. called Motherboard, which is all about two robots that attempt to reproduce. Um, and then the kind of terrible repercussions of this, you know, technologically induced 
reproduction. Um, I told another story about uh, the life of a baby chick in a factory farm because I have relatives that raise chickens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's all about the systematic uh, life cycle of chickens in a factory farm where the, you know, the males will get ground up and feed. And it's all just kind of like one series of torture after another. So those are the sort of the narratives that I was telling while I was in grad school. How do how does it work in terms of, uh, you know, having actual materials and then the ones that you wind up animate and then how does that editing process work? Because it seems like there's a, you know, a lot that reminds me of, um, you know, uh, Bendai dots or like screen printed backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And then you've got other ones where they're kind of like outlined with these dark outlines. So I, I'm just curious, could you kind of walk us through a, a little bit of how, I guess, if somebody went to your website and looked at an animation now and the, the four that are up there, you know, how do those things go together? Sure, sure. Let me start kind of at the beginning of the, uh, the workflow. It starts doing some visual, visual research where I'm going to go to an engineering archive where I can find 40-year-old, 50-year-old um, uh, copies of Metallurgy Today or Popular Mechanics or some Russian rocket science um, uh, journal uh, with lots of pictures, some of them airbrushed, uh, maybe some old uh, factory supply manual from 1964. Take all these images that I find in these uh, publications, I'll scan them, sometimes Xerox them. Um, if I can, sometimes I'll eBay piles of old magazines and, and manually cut things out. So I have all these little mechanical parts, like in giant piles, either literally or digitally. And then I start collaging them together into figures, humanoid sort of figures, animal figures, maybe kind of weird versions of cars or tanks, whatever I need for a certain narrative. And these will be just like paper images. And then there's two ways they can go. One is they become even more elaborate collages that are partially digital, partially analog, that becomes edition screen prints. Um, or they go right into the computer and I assign colors and I make backgrounds with these same sort of collage materials and start animating. Uh, usually the, since the source material is 50 years old, um, it's already halftoned. Um, so you'll see big halftones and I enlarge all these. So the halftones get big and fat. I add in big, bold outlines to make them even more flat graphic looking. Sometimes I'll even take those screen prints, scan them in and bring them in to the computer to animate. So everything is brought into layers to animate using Photoshop animation techniques. Um, excuse me. Um, and, then, and then sometimes those animations, uh, I'll take a cell um, or a still and I'll break it down into layers, export it into print, digital prints, and then transfer those to screen prints and screen print them. So there's this weird Mobius strip uh, where they all start with a collage, but then they start interacting with each other on a level of print or animation, back and forth, back and forth, but using the same language of big halftones, big blocks of color, what in, what in printmaking you would call flat graphics, color blocks. Um, and so even when they're digital, they look very much like their print come from printmaking because half the time they have been, or they come from the same sort of matrix of, of big blocks, big dots um, that we think of in the world of print. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Um, and do you do you find that you know just the, your ability to experiment and innovate is really just second nature in terms of just uh, trying things out? You know, you get an idea, um, you know, for an animation that you want to do, and then just maybe randomly think like, "Be cool if this happened," and then try to figure out how how that works. 
Yeah, you know, I, I actually work from a storyboard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at some points, there just gets to be a point where we get to, a, you know, there's certain things that are basically making things walk, making things move. But well, how do you make something explode? How do you make uh, the whole image blur because it's shaking from an explosion in a war scene? Um, that's when you have to troubleshoot. And then you have to think about what's the best way to do this? Do I take an image, print it, throw India ink on it, or paint, scan it back in, and then animate it? Or is it all digital based on Photoshop? So it gets to be a big kind of a challenging troubleshoot constantly to figure out what is the best way to accomplish the visual effect that I want. And there's never like one answer. Um, I, sometimes it's digital, uh, but sometimes, you know, and I'm always telling my students this, you know, when you want your image to look like it's a crumpled piece of paper, print it out and crumple it up and scan the thing back in. Don't spend, you know, a day on Photoshop trying to make, try, trying to achieve an effect that you can get in two seconds by maybe burning a real piece of paper. Well, it, that's that's something that, you know, you bring that up. It, it makes a lot of sense because I think that, you know, with technology, um, people sometimes think that that's the only the only resolution then is just to work everything digitally, um, you mm. know, remove the hand completely. And I really like how those things, you know, kind of, um, you know, merge together in your work, especially one of the one of the biggest things that I think is great is the like anytime there's a, an explosion, it it seems like you kind of have, um, you know, these uh, very short bursts of what like, like what looks like a like a just an abstract painting, you know, just kind of <laughs> freaking out. And I'm just like, man, that looks so cool. Thanks. Now, I have a, a painter friend, Melissa Thorne, who uh, teaches painting at uh, SUNY Albany, and she always makes fun of me that I'm a sort of a closet abstract expressionist painter because I always hide it in the explosion. <laughs> right, right. Well, and again, it's just, it's like I said, there's so many different levels that you can see to that. I think even the, the, the newest um, animation that's on uh, your website, mm-hmm. um, there's like a, just even things that look like projection. Do you ever kind of incorporate, um, I guess, into the backgrounds, like a, a different kind of visual effects in some areas and then can isolate those? You know, be, uh, because it's done in layers, you can kind of do a faux depth of field thing where you can blur backgrounds or blur foregrounds. So those are sort of digital things that allows me to work in the language of film. And it's totally, you know, illusionary. Not, well, not that filmmaking is an illusionary. But, yeah, sometimes I'll, I like to dabble in that. And sometimes I like things just to be totally flat, modernist. Uh, you know, without that much of an illusion of depth. It kind of just depends on what I need to tell the story. Well, so let's get back a little bit to the idea of the subjects that are in there. You know, you've talked a little bit about them as, you know, being metaphors for humans and kind of something in there. And again, obviously, it's it's an interesting thing to, to think about because I think a lot of people can approach this subject matter in such a heavy-handed and, and almost serious way that, doesn't make it as approachable as the way you make it. You know, you, you, I don't know why you start to kind of identify for these, uh, characters and, and start thinking about thinking about them in a way that if it was like a, a film that you made in film school or something, it might be over dramatic, I guess. Yeah. Well, well, first it's kind of two things. You don't care unless they're at least some, you create some sort of empathy for the characters, whether they're human or animal. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, that was actually a great thing I learned in grad school is when I was doing this video about this little robot chicken. Uh, uh, I had one of my instructors, David Carbone, who teaches painting at SUNY Albany, who also has a, has a film studies background, just told me like he didn't care enough. There wasn't enough 
you know, if, even though it's an animal, it needs to come. We kind of need to. We need to have characteristics like a human for us to really care. So I went back and added some more interaction, some more backstory. Um, so all the characters have to be. Uh, believable and have some humanistic traits. We have to anthropomorphize these things. Um, but at the same time, by having this kind of a, by shooting everything through this visual lens of robots and quasi science fiction, it allows me to get away with being a little more heavy handed than you would think. So, you know, I can get away showing chickens in, in a factory farm getting debeaked and tortured. And, you know, there's still robot chickens. It's the way Art Spiegelman did with Mouse, where he talked about the Holocaust through these metaphors of, you know, cartoony mice and cats. If you uh, filter things through a visual lens, you can get away with, with more than you would if you were shooting just straight video and straight film. It's not going to be read as heavy-handed. You know, when I have a story about robots trying to have sex and have a baby, you know, it can be, it's, you can add more comedy into it because there are these non-human characters. Um, when I tried to tell the story about like just how much work sucks, well, and, and, and you know, at the times you can have uh, maybe one of the, you know, in one of these stories in my, my animation quit job, press play, it's all about a child character who basically gets tortured. There's no way people are going to watch that. If it's a real human, you would not be allowed to probably. But if it's a little robot, you know, boy, well, yeah, then you can totally like plug him into things and do what you want. Um, and people will kind of roll with it a little bit more. Well, and it's interesting to me because that um, that idea just kind of reminds me of, uh, I don't know, being being able to access it because everybody can relate to something, or at least most people I think have seen an animation. Mm -hmm. Um, they know what a comic book is. And for me, it kind of almost then kind of brings up those ideas that you would have, you know, more as a kid, you know, something that would be much more idealistic. And so when you kind of pair it with the subject matter, it's kind of approachable, but at the same time kind of gets you to, I don't know, re-examine some of your uh, assumptions about the way things work as an, as an adult. Yeah. There's something about working with icons that lets people, have more empathy with the characters. You know, it's actually go back to comics in Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics, which is, have you read that? No, I haven't. I haven't. It's like, a, if you're into comics, it's kind of like the, one of the first big, serious, quasi-scholarly things uh, written about comics in a comic book form. And he talks about how the more realistic an image is, the less we can put ourselves into that image. The harder it is to have empathy with this detailed, naturalistic image. But while when you move more towards the iconic, things get more easily easy to relate to. So that's what that's the strength of say the smiley face icon is that we can all see ourselves into that. That's the, the success of some manga um, and more. Um, quote-unquote cartoony figures is that we can easily uh, find ourselves in these characters. In Charlie Brown, we all can feel his sort of um, existential uh, depression uh, because he's so simplistically drawn that we all can we can all be Charlie Brown, which is kind of ridiculous to say, <laughs> but I actually think that's kind of true. So working with basic iconographic characters helps the narrative um, because we can all see ourselves in that narrative. It makes me wonder then, too, what, what your stance or at least your ideas are about, you know, technology, because even kind of chiming into this, the way that I'm looking at it is like kind of connecting through these past experiences, because you can remember what it's like to be a kid and look at a comic book. You know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, some of the things that you source from are also very old. And I think in many ways speak to a time when I could think of, um, 
you know, technology as, as being something that's supposed to, you know, really aid in having a great life, you know, even just something completely tangentially, um, you know, if you've seen the show Mad Men, mm-hmm. uh, it's very interesting when they kind of release like this new, you know, like I think in the, one of the first episodes, there's like a, something about a chip and dip, you know, which is like um, maybe not exactly like a you know, a machine part, but, um, but it's a t- food technology. Yeah. Yeah. Something that's supposed to aid our, you know, convenience and make us, you know, live these more fuller lives. And so is there anything, um, you know, involved in that you want to kind of reexamine by, you know, kind of referencing, um, you know, all these machines that are a bit older and then kind of coming up with your, your hybrids as you're, you know, scanning them and, and using all these different source materials. Sir, you know, it's hard to work in collage without, at some point acknowledging where you fit with nostalgia um, and how you're going to address nostalgia. Because, uh, you know, I, I, I think uh, Lewis Clark, the uh, experimental filmmaker who does you know, animated collages, talked about it really well um, kind of recently of how he's a reanimator. He doesn't consider himself an animator, but he finds old source material and brings new life back into it. Um, and that's any collage artist is basically a reanimator. You're taking older things. Um, so that's one thing that I know that I'm doing. I fall within that tradition. As in terms of technology, uh, you know, at time, I, I think my work is critical, but at the same time, I do recognize that it's integral. Um, you know, I wouldn't do, I wouldn't be making my animations these days without this sort of democratizing ability of Photoshop to allow people to make animations and all this easy-to-use software. Um, I wouldn't be doing this interview without Skype. Uh, I wouldn't, you know, and I know when my son was a baby, I used a baby monitor. You know, we're using all these technologies all the time that are integral um, to our life. Uh, what I'm asking it, it, from my viewer is to just stop, investigate, and question whether the technologies that I might be addressing within my work are technologies that we want. Um, I think you know, that's a big thing. My, my wife is, uh, is an academic in the field of science and technology studies, um, and I'm very much influenced by her and her colleagues that ask people just to stop, slow down, and ask themselves, you know, we, we're not going to be stopping all the technologies that keep coming constantly, but maybe we should just question, are these technologies something that really, we really want? Are they helpful to us? Is this an improvement or is this uh, something that's maybe destructive? So when I look at the world of work and my animation quit job, press play, you know, I, it's not like we're going to stop having jobs, but maybe we can have different jobs, jobs that we may like better, or maybe we can change the way uh, the, the systems that we're living in, maybe we can change the way they work to make them more hospitable for in my my work, robot life, but really it means human life. Right. It's it's interesting to to see the the relationship, especially you know we've been talking about the animations, the way that you know there's a, a level of a metaphor standing in for people and then animals. Um, so I was hoping we could just talk a little bit about you know some of those themes and the the different animations that you have up on your website, and maybe you know we'll talk about uh, the first one that you have, um, you know motherboard. Um, which again is kind of, I guess, more of um, you know more of that uh, humanoid kind of stand-in for the robots um, reproducing. So, could, could you talk a little bit about you know what, what's going on in in this animation? Sure. Well, in Motherboard, it's the story uh, basically of robot sex and robot reproduction. So we have two characters that are somewhat ambiguously gendered. I've had people who kind of took the one I intend to perhaps be male to be female and vice versa. Um, so, it, it, so it's also a little bit about my uh, trying to comment a little bit on gender, but basically it's about two robots who attempt to reproduce 
And when they are unsuccessful, they go through a series of technological interventions to help them uh, reproduce, which each, there's three different ones that have unfortunate consequences. One um, creates a spawn of scary robot scorpions instead of a robot baby. Um, One of them causes a duplicate of the mother that then falls apart. And boy, I can't remember what the third one is, (laughs) but eventually it ends up where they do want, they do get pregnant and there's a scary scene where um, the robot the baby is born, um, but ends up enslaving its parents. Which, for anyone who has actually had a baby, perhaps <laughs> there's a little truth in that. So I know I've had many, both parents and children, really laugh at the, the ending scene where there's this giant, monstrous robot wearing a diaper that's whipping its parents as they're scrubbing <laughs> the floor. Which I pretty much made from personal experience. Well, and I think, again, that's one of the things that, you know, I, I, I was trying to highlight, maybe not doing it successfully earlier, but I, I like that aspect of it where it's very approachable, too. You know, they're, they're serious ideas, but then you're kind of bringing them up in a way that you can approach them and, and not, you know, again, feel like it's um, a dare ad or something. Sure, sure, sure. I don't know what kind of reactions you wind up getting then in terms of of the viewers if you, if you if you showed something like the the, the chicken coop. Um. Yeah, so the chicken coop was particularly interesting because I particularly set out to make it to not resemble anything like a pita ad mm-hmm. um, because you know the the pita ad of being didactic, over the top, um, and of, you know of course I have also my problems of pita being offensive to women. Um, you know, being over the top and I not approachable. Um, so I wanted mine to be approachable, to have an, but still have an emotional response, and somehow be not just a nonfiction story, but there'd be some sort of twist. There had to be some sort of uh, way to end it that would bring about some element of hope. Mm-hmm. So that's in the ending. I have the ending, which is inspired actually by my mother-in-law's chickens, where uh, there, there's this coop of real chickens where. Uh, eggs were being mysteriously eaten um, and my mother-in-law caught one of the hens with egg yolk dripping from her beak um, so apparently there is a cannibal in the midst so I use that as an inspiration to end the chicken coop where thinking well how could this robot hen resist in this world of mechanized torture um, with her eggs being constantly removed the only way to resist would be to destroy the eggs herself and that ends starts this kind of horror sequence that that video ends with where she starts destroying all of her eggs and then eventually pecking the hands that come to intervene. Um, you know, and ending with the idea of that, does she end up, you know, who knows how that ends? Does, you know, there really isn't an escape, but she does form a resistance. Right. Um, so that, that was my trying to put some sort of novelty to the end of that video. Does it not also incorporate some actual video of a chicken walking around? Yeah, yeah. Oh, at the end of that, that there's actually real. There's two elements of real chicken video in there um, that I took at my mother-in-law's uh, uh, farm. It was a, they, they, it was in a working farm, but it used to be uh, one of them in which when the, when the chicken is tortured um, and in real life in factory farms, chickens um, when they stop laying, they're removed from water and light and mate and food for a certain amount of time. And they basically, they kind of starve them and it shocks them 
somehow into laying eggs again. Mm-hmm. So I do that to my chicken protagonist. Um, and when this happens, she hallucinates and has this dream sequence um, of real, where I show real video footage of chickens kind of wandering around this mountaintop, which I took, uh, of the kind of dreaming of being free range. And at the very end, I, I then uh, intersperse that footage again of just chickens um, in, in this sort of idyllic, setting in front of this old chicken coop pecking around and being free range so trying to show the alternative and you know my trying to be somewhat less than ham-fisted way and and to kind of bring up those live action ones again it's it's something that comes up in in the after the day after sure like in the, in the beginning it's really nice too because for anybody that um can recognize some of these actors from the you know the movies that you're taking from also is, is something that's kind of interesting. But you know, obviously, talking a bit about you know like a nuclear fallout. Yeah, where where does the live footage fit in with after the day after? Yeah, yeah. So- well, for that, you know, after doing Chicken Coop, and I really did enjoy putting the live footage in because it adds like an extreme amount of dissonance um, as you're viewing. But if you can make it work within the narrative, the narrative can hold it together. So, but for after the day after, which is really just a scene for or scene for scene, shot for shot remake of a section of that old 1983 movie, After the Day After, um, retell ta- ta- you know the story and the original made for TV movie is all about nuclear holocaust. So I just took a section of that and just left the the real video at the very beginning and at the very end, and then remade everything in between with my own sort of stop motion um, robot style. But, but but by keeping the sort of bookends, I, I was hoping that would tie together the fact that I'm remaking all this, um, the, this, this old video with my own video. And maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but I'm hoping the narrative um, holds that whole chunk of that video together. Well, and, and to talk about the last one specifically, I mean, again, as you look over all these, I mean, is there any kind of arc that you're trying to go through in terms of when you when you make a new... Um, animation or, or something that you're interested in, I don't know, kind of bringing from some of these other ones or are they all kind of like under themselves or do they kind of add as, as you kind of work through them? The way I work is I kind of will choose a theme that ends up influencing all of my work, video, print, and collage, maybe for a year to two years. So there was definitely a time when, uh, the chicken coup was kind of what I was doing. The chicken coup and motherboard are kind of on their own because that they were grad school things and I had huge concentrated amounts of time. But by the time I got into after the day after, all of my work for about two years was post-apocalyptic nuclear atomic robot destruction. So there's mm-hmm. after the day after video, I did six different editions of like just flat screen prints for gallery work. Um, and I made this giant uh, floor sculpture made up of a hundred or so crumpled up near life-size silver robot screen prints that were cut out so, so they and piled into a giant pile so it looks sort of like a robot holocaust mm-hmm. on the gallery floor um and that so I, that floor piece the wall pieces in the video were kind of very much us that was a show um that i exhibited at rpi at their gallery space. And then now I'm, you know, I feel like I've very much currently moved on to the issue of labor and work. And that's where quit job, press play fits in. I have two different edi- screen print editions that are kind of part of that body of work. And I definitely have more. And I actually have, an, I have a, a work of 3D little robot figures uh, that have worked into that. And there'll probably be some more printmaking that goes along with this series of labor. So they're kind of, in a way, they're kind of self-contained uh, units 
Um, but, you know, those, some of the characters go from one piece to the other. And after the day after, pretty much any character I'd ever created was there for maybe a split second just so I could blow it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, he, and also in Quit Job Press Play, some old characters uh, make reappearances. So, so there's kind of like, there's certain elements of the visual language characters there's certain backgrounds i've used maybe like 15 times so like little bits and pieces keep reappearing throughout my work well it's interesting too because then you start kind of creating this this you know this world you know i guess in in a way the more that you wind up doing and the more things that almost kind of make a cameo in there but I, i guess one of the other things that i would say too is that the the new one um I would imagine, especially even just because of the other ones that you have on there. I mean, it's so, it's so, it seems so slick and so well done, you know, so much more, I don't know, like you can see the, the level of, I guess, innovation kind of tumbling over and kind of snowballing and kind of, you know, becoming more and more innovative, more and more clean. Um, It seems like the, the highest quality video too. Yeah. It's a combination of two things. One, uh, just finally making my jump into high definition video, mm-hmm. uh, which is super easy if you're just doing everything digital. Um, and then two, it, it after doing you know four and a half so animations, you're going to get better. You know, you just you know I, people ask me you know how to you know progress as an animator, and cer- to a certain extent, as you can learn new, all these new technologies, maybe you want to learn After Effects or I Stop Motion, um, or maybe you're going to learn Maya. But the only real way to bring things to life is just to do it. And now finally, so finally, after getting a few animations under my belt, I've gotten better. Um, and it, do, it doesn't hurt the fact that now that I'm like teaching animation and looking at like, oh, this is actually how to make things walk in the right way. Um, and uh, so part, some of it's tech based. Some of it is just practical. I've done it. Um, I've done more experiences and all of these prior experiences feed into my knowledge of doing it right now. Well, and, and just to kind of clarify then too, because um, we talked a little bit about how the process works, but not specifically, you know, all the different um, programs or I don't know, maybe some of the programs that you use. So what, what do you primarily use in terms of being able to put these together after, you know, we're talking about the printed collages? and, and... Yeah, um, most of the animation is this Photoshop. A Photoshop CS6 has a lot of great timeline-based animation. Um, if I'm doing a lot of just stop-motion-y stuff, sometimes I'll even just make all these JPEGs and run them through this freeware called Frame Splicer. Mm-hmm. And, all, but, and then all these are basically ways to create moving things that are in small, quick-time video format that I then bring into Final Cut for video editing. Uh, and then for sound, I basically use GarageBand and just a bunch of different little amplifiers, keyboards... Uh, and all the different sound elements that I've kind of collected over the years. But it's really, really not that... It's pretty low-tech, and you can kind of tell um, at times. But it it's really relies primarily on Photoshop, cause, which I use because as a collage artist, you know, I view Photoshop as being just a collage tool. Um, so and it, with now Photoshop, you can create moving collages. And that's pretty much where I want to be at. And is it also something too where you you know you notice that that these aren't necessarily always things that are done entirely on your own? Is it something that you kind of also are able to kind of interact with other artists that are maybe interested in kind of contributing in different ways to these as well? Sometimes I've had a few undergraduate project assistants, which I will have help you know creating files and doing the stop motion work, and definitely for the sound elements, you know I play drums and a little keyboards and can do some engineering work. But, you know, if I need a bass or a guitar, I need to f- find 
collaborators that I've worked with to help me make some of those extra sounds. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 very cool. And um, so, just to kind of get an idea of of the way that this might be presented with these other works, what what would a typical experience be um, in terms of seeing? you know, a, a solo show then of, of the animations. And then do you normally kind of incorporate then all the other prints and collages within that? In the best case scenario, I would like to ha- I like to have, you know, maybe one video either on a large flat screen or a projection that's kind of isolated in terms to make it dark, but then also have uh, maybe some pedestals or a vitrine full of the collage that generated the work and then prints on the wall. And I always like to have something on the floor. Uh, so some sort of like maybe a sculptural piece that goes along with it. But, you know, they, that's, that's the best case scenario. The way it works a lot of the time is, you know, these may be seen at a film festival or maybe it's just a flat screen on a gallery as part of a group show. Uh, I'm pretty flexible and I will show uh, wherever I can. You know, currently I have a, a little solo exhibition coming up at this new artist co-op uh, in Albany, and they had mo- mo- basically said wall space, so I gave them prints. That works for them. Uh, I know Sage, who you had the prior interview with, uh, I'm going to be sending her some sculptural piece and the video piece uh, for this uh, work that she's curating in St. Louis. Um, so it really just depends on what's coming up. Uh, you know, it, I would love I love to have a giant space all to myself to have a combination of stuff. Uh, video, sculpture, wall pieces, but I'll, I'll work with what I have. Sure, sure. Well, and it, it brings up something else to me that I'm kind of curious about. What is there? Do you notice any difference in terms of, you know, showing these in a, a gallery space versus at a film festival in terms of the way that they're, you know, kind of received? Because I, I would imagine they're kind of different environments, um, just even in the way that they're presented. Sure. Um, film festivals are, in a way. They're very nice in the fact that your audience is trapped. <laughs> you, get a theater, you get a theater full of people, and especially if it's a reel of shorts uh, with a bunch of shorts put together, people are going to stay. And in a way, I feel kind of guilty because I'm like, oh, what if they don't like it? No, they're going to feel bad about leaving. Where at a gallery, if they, they, you, know, you may have people that will approach a video work, watch for a few minutes, and walk away. Mm-hmm. I, I do have you know, the advantage of if, I'm in a, if my work is in a group show – you know, I literally will have the noisy piece in the show. Uh, you know, with I have all these distorted sounds, uh, flashy images. My work will definitely is kind of is the is the noisy piece at a group show, um, particularly if it's a printmaking show where people oftentimes have work framed. Uh, but my piece will be a video piece. Maybe it's a projection or it's a flat screen. But you know, I'll usually you know we'll get a crowd of people around because um, the room sound will draw people in. However, if I have to have headphones, that definitely puts a, da- a dampener on things, and people can only get it, you know, only a few people at a gallery can be engaged at, at the same time. So it's a little of both. You know, film festivals are great because they're trapped there, but at the same time, it's really hard to find the right film festival for your work. You might find a film festival that you have a packed audience, but maybe the other films on the reel aren't a good match for your work. The gallery will probably be a better match in terms of that my work will be more of working consistently with other pieces, but then it's always that a video is, isn't always perfect for a gallery. People may have to wear headphones. Uh, they may not want to stand and watch a whole 10-minute piece. It's just it, it, gallery work, being in a gallery presents some problems for video. 
You know, it's, again, really refreshing to kind of hear you talking about, you know, all the relationships of uh, working on the animations and, you know, the collages, all the innovation that comes up and collaboration. So, um, you know, again, it's just been a, a great pleasure to have you on. And uh, I look forward to uh, walking into a massive space and uh, seeing, seeing all these things interact in uh, real time. Well, thank you, Dave, for having me on. Um, and, uh, my answer for that is yeah, yeah, me too. I look forward to doing more. Um, and I appreciate, uh, you letting me have this conversation. All right. Thanks again to Nathan for joining us. And once again, check out NathanMeltz.com. I'd also like to invite you to check out my website, davidlinaway.com. Become familiar with my work, which explores a lot of landscape, architecture, and a variety of different ways, uh, mostly painting. So please go ahead and check that out. Just a reminder that this is not the only episode of Studio Break. There's tons of others that you can check out on studiobreak.com. Just look through the archives on the left sidebar to scroll month by month. Again, each of those posts have all the different images, links to the artist's website, and links to the iTunes store where you can subscribe to the Studio Break podcast. One small favor, again, if you've been a long-time listener, we would really appreciate it if you left us some comments, some feedback. It generally just helps with visibility, and for others that like to listen to podcasts like bad at sports or maybe you like the moth again there's so many out there so please help others that are looking for cool things to listen to a few more reminders please like our facebook page again we provide updates of some of the guests that we have coming up on the program as well as have show announcements sometimes competitions and other things like that so please go ahead and like our facebook page you can follow us on twitter at studio break and you can also follow me at david linway We have a couple of announcements. The first and perhaps largest is that Studio Break is turning to October 12th. And if you'd like to come and celebrate, I will be having an exhibition or at least a piece, a collaboration with one Bill Conger of Peoria, Illinois. We have a piece at Jam Brandt Gallery. And the same night is a huge opening there with Michael Willie and Benjamin Gardner. They have a painting show opening called Auspice, and it looks amazing. They're really excellent. And... uh, Uh, We've had both of them on Studio Break before, so there's tons of things to check out. I'm sure there'll be things going on upstairs at Mannequin Press. Mike and Ben are also brewing a bunch of beer, so please help us celebrate October 12th again. That's at Jan Brandt Gallery in Bloomington, Illinois, so if you can make it, uh, we'd love to see you and say hello. We want to remind you that Grace Sheets, who recently came on um, and did an interview for Studio Break, has a show up at the Merwin Gallery in Bloomington, Illinois, that runs through September 26th. So please go ahead and check it out. And of course, she does have a ton of new work up on her website. So please go and visit it. Lovely, lovely works. And they're all available for purchase. So please go ahead and check them out. GraceSheets.tumblr.com. Those of you living in Chicago should check out Bob Jones' Form as Ruin at 65 Grand. It runs through October 12th. We do have some cool interviews coming up with Bill Conger, with Donovan Widmer, and a number of other special guests that we're in the process of getting booked as we approach October 12th. Again, it's the height of the art season. There's a lot of shows opening. And again, you'll want to check out Facebook and like our page there and see all the the stuff that we have to offer in terms of covering it. We hope that you enjoyed the episode today, and we'll talk to you real soon.